0: Hi and welcome to another episode of Gomology, podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today represents a quite different outerwear company, so I'm looking forward to hearing all about that. Welcome, Martin. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Nick. How are you? I'm very well, thanks very much. Would you like to start by uh, mention a bit about yourself, your background, and uh, then sort of segue into the company you represent? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Martin Brooks, and I'm one of the
1: co-founders of, of Shackleton. Um, uh, I live in um, in Sussex in the UK, uh, and um, my my career in the in the garment industry, if you like, um, is only um, about five years old. Before that, I was very much involved in marketing services. So I was effectively I was an ad man, um, but I'm more of a, I guess, an entrepreneur in marketing services. So I set up various different marketing agencies. I'm um, working for lots of big clients around the world, you know, Google, Unilever, PlayStation and less glamorous ones, you know, like, you know, bleach companies and, you know, soap companies and people like that, but um uh, after after I sold my last business about 5 or 6 years ago, um I after all many many years of advising other people on how to build brands, I really um, was drawn to the idea of seeing if I could do it myself, um, and see if I could really, um, you know, build a build a brand <clears throat> and uh, and shepherd it all the way to to being something significant. And um, the the genesis of the company really was well. There's two sides of it. One is um, Ernest Shackleton himself. So the business is called Shackleton. We're a an expedition apparel and experiences company. So we make expedition kit, but we also um, give the opportunity to people for people to come uh, on our Shackleton Challenges, as we call them, which are expedition experiences in places like Norway, Svalbard, Iceland, and Antarctica as well. Um, and the journey for me started, I guess when I was a teenager, really, I had a picture of Ernest Shackleton on my wall when I was 18, 19 years old, because my granddad, who was a Royal Marine, um, he, was a, he was a Shackleton fan, and he, he used to tell me that Shackleton was the man, you know, he was the, he was the real leader. And that I should look out for him. And and so I did, and I understood, you know, I, I sort of studied him a bit, read a bit of South, which is his, his kind of monumental um, uh, biography or account of the endurance expedition, um, and was really very much drawn to this character. And I sort of made him the the chairman of my own personal board in my head. <laughs> so it was a kind of what would Shackleton do at any particular situation of a junction in my life where I needed to make a big decision. He was always there in my head. Um, so yeah, he's been with me, um, for quite a long time. Um, and then about nine or 10 years ago, I met, um, I was on holiday with my young family in on a Greek Island and I was a walking around the, around the swimming pool and there was a guy lying on a lounger. And um, he was reading a book by Ranulph Fiennes, the Explorer, called Race to the Pole, um, uh, about Scott and Amazon and their race to the pole in, 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 the, in the beginning of the last century. And um, and I saw this guy was an English speaker, and, um, or an English reader, certainly. And I just sort of leant over and said, oh, I'm more of a Shackleton man myself to this guy. Whereupon <laughs> uh, this guy and I started talking and then we went for a beer um, by the pool. Um and as quite often happens when you're a long way away, you meet people and then discover that they live about 400 meters down the road from you in Southwest London. Um, and okay. this guy um, <clears throat> turned out to be Ian Holcroft, who's now my partner in Shackleton. So I was working in advertising; he was working in the city as a um, as a trader, actually, a trader of sovereign debt, and. Um, But his real passion outside of work was adventure racing, mountain racing, you know, he's one of these guys that will run across the the Atacama desert, 120 miles, doing back-to-back marathons over six days. That sort of endurance, test your limits kind of guy. Um, Done lots of road racing, cycling, uh, and and foot racing. Um, I was, and I'm a sailor, so I sailed the Atlantic. Ian's rode the Atlantic. Um, So he's a lot more hardcore than me. Um, but we, we share a, a, a love and, um, and a passion for adventure and exploration. And anyway, so we, we, we met on this, on this Island and then we then met when we got back to the UK <clears throat> and we used to just meet up, uh, and, and, um, we became friends and used to talk about, you know, running a business that was all about exploration and adventure. Um, and, um. We had this opportunity then that came along because we we'd been talking about what the great opportunity it would be to, to build a business based on the, the life and values and, and achievements of Ernest Shackleton. And then we had this opportunity really to, um, uh, there was a, there was a, <laughs> bizarrely, there was a banjo business in Norfolk, um, that, um, that had created the Shackleton banjo. Um, there's a backstory on the, on the, and the endurance at Shackleton's ship that um, Leonard Hussey, who was the ship's physicist, was a banjo player and had a banjo. And when when the ship um, was crushed and went down in the ice, and Shackleton famously tore off his um, tore off his Cartier watch and threw it in the water, and and uh, ripped Psalm 23 out of his Bible, put it in his pocket, and said, you know, if we all try and keep our stuff, we're all going to die. So you can't bring anything. Um, and they, you know, they. Tragically and famously, shot uh, Mrs. Chippy, who was who's the ship's cat. Um, uh, there's lots of gruesome moments in this thing, many of which you don't hear about. But um, uh, there was a banjo, and he was Halsey was about to smash the banjo, and um, and Shackleton said, "No, we need it. Don't do that because it's vital mental medicine." Um, and Shackleton <laughs> Shackleton had this um, amazing gift for maintaining morale and understanding um, that with a team who. Who, whose morale was high, you could almost get them to do anything and get them to believe that they would survive, even though the odds of survival seemed you know, ridiculously low. Anyway, so there was a banjo company um, up in Norfolk, um, and you'll be surprised to know that it wasn't a huge commercial success. Um, and um, <clears throat> we had the opportunity essentially to buy the banjo company, which we did because of the, the name. Uh, we then got um, uh, the Honorable Alexandra Shackleton, who's the granddaughter of Sir Ernest on board as a shareholder. Um, Then we registered the intellectual property, of the trademarks across multiple asset classes around the world. Um, And uh, and then started making not very nice scratchy jumpers about five years ago, um, because we thought, well, at least there's a picture of Ernest Shackleton wearing a scratchy jumper. Um, So we'll make one a bit like that. And then um, from there, we went on this journey with this business. Um, with neither of us having a clue about making product, I'd made ads before and um, built websites and advised clients on marketing tra- strategies. Um, and Ian was a was a trader, um, but we were united. Well, we both got a reasonable amount of business knowledge and both sort of entrepreneurial people who believe that with with passion and brains and application and hard work, then you know most things are um, available. Um, now, obviously, over the years, that's come back to bite me in the backside quite badly because my lack of knowledge about about every stage of um, uh, of the clothing industry um, has shown shown me to not know anything about it, and it's very complex and there's a lot to learn. But um, five years later, we're still very much here, and um, we've managed to um, you know yeah establish a, a product range and a positioning um, and, and a business that's now growing very nicely. Thank you.
0: We'll get back to Ernest Shackleton in a little mm. bit. Um, I'd like to hear more about, you said that you started out with Scratchy Jumpers, which mm. is a kind of British speciality. Yes. um British wool, and, mm. you know, they do itch. Um, but did you hire people who were sort of product developers or did you go to factories? Or how no, did you go then. about
1: building it up? <clears throat> not then. We, we sort of just went to factories and, um, and, and pointed at pictures <laughs> and said, can you make us one of these, please? Um, the first ones were made of, I think it was called Shapley yarn. Um, and the smell of the lanolin in the yarn was so strong that the return rate was ridiculous because not only were they, um, pretty serious exfoliators of any skin that they touched, So if you, if you, if you wore them, uh, they stripped the skin off your neck, but as well as that, it felt like you were wearing a sheep, um, uh, or cuddling a sheep all night. So, um, we then managed to, um, yeah, we over the over a period of iterations. I think we're now on our sixth or seventh version of of this sweater, which we now call the Hero Sweater, um, and it's now made in a beautiful um, Australian lambs lambswool, uh, and they're made in Italy, and it's just the most beautiful product ever. It's our number one selling selling product, and. Um, you know, some people have bought every color we've ever made because it just has this gift of being a, a, a sweater that just makes every man, whether they're t- short or tall, fat, thin, whatever, look really rugged and look great. Um, so it's and it, we've just managed to get that balance between, and this is what the, the, <clears throat> the evolution process has been, the balance to get it feeling um, tough, rugged and warm and quite structured, but at the same time, incredibly soft and comfortable to wear so we all know about that, you know about wool's legendary properties of it being warm when it's wet um uh, and you know how obviously it's natural and you know it will last forever etc cetera, etc cetera. um but um <clears throat> actually having something that you really really want to wear time and time again is is uh, is quite a feat and this because they're quite structured i mean they they're um uh, they're 5 gauge um and um they just managed to hold their shape brilliantly and and, uh, they're super comfortable. So, yeah, I think I've got three or four of them and you know, I sort of start wearing them late September and I'm still wearing them now.
0: So um, there's heaps of photos of Ernest Shackleton and his motley crew around. Mm -hmm. And these were obviously seriously rugged guys. Yeah. And uh, have you been looking at old photos of the sort of vintage looks
1: yes we have um, and um, I mean it's interesting to say they're seriously rugged guys because they obviously they were the fact that all twenty eight of them survived the horrific you know two and a half year ordeal that they survived uh, they were but um, only a small number of them were if you like rugged seamen you know they were the others were um, <clears throat> you know physicists and doctors and zoologists and um, uh, and people of um, Let's say more learned professions, and so to be able to survive those, you know, surroundings um, without any experience, some of them, none of them, been anywhere near uh, the poles. So it's quite an incredible feat, like I said, of, of leadership that he managed to get them all believing that they could stay alive, but also operating as a team of people, despite very, very, you know, wildly disparate backgrounds and, um, you know, sort of uh, social context, I guess. Um, so we did look at um, we did start to what was, so when we when we started the business we were very much going down the heritage route and thinking you know here's a great opportunity we'll make make some jumpers and make some products that are like we did a peacoat very early on for example um, but a, but a couple of years in we um, about eighteen months in it just became very clear that the opportunity for the business was far, far bigger than a kind of dress like a an Edwardian adventurer kind of uh, proposition. And that actually in Ernest Shackleton and the life of Ernest Shackleton, there is this incredible array of um, really powerful values. Um, uh, and having spent 25 years building brands and trying to put purpose and meaning into brands, which is very hard to retrofit, you know, um, but to build, to start a brand that has this amazing treasure trove treasure trove of stories uh, and values like courage and leadership and camaraderie uh, and endurance and all of the stuff that we know and love about Ernest Shackleton it takes decades and millions and millions of dollars to build a brand that that, that has those kinds of powerful values baked in right from the start and we recognize therefore that um, the opportunity was far more than, you know, buy a jumper that, you know, a bit like the one Anna Shackleton used to wear, and that actually the opportunity to build a multi-category brand uh, and business that started with apparel, started with clothing, um, uh, <clears throat> but has a lot more opportunity to go way beyond clothing. But even within clothing, um, it's not, we realized that, you know, it would be pretty limited to just build it on heritage clothing, and actually, um, given the the huge boom in, you know, in outdoor and, and exploration and the access that the world now offers to people who want to go and do amazing things in amazing places. Um, what a great opportunity to build a brand that's creating product that you know that you can wear and that's gonna that, that has this combination of high performance that's gonna keep you warm and dry in the world's most extremely cold and wet and horrible places. Um, not horrible, beautiful, but very, very challenging faces. <laughs> but at the same time, um, you know, is well cut and it's made of beautiful fabrics and the design is excellent and it's flattering and the colors are great. And, um, um, and it's that coming together that we really feel is the opportunity for Shackleton, because if you look at, um, if you look at the, the market at a, at a sort of high level Um, you've got one set of brands that are the, uh, it's the outdoor industry, all these brands that will keep you warm and dry and they're all in bright colors. And then you've got this sort of luxury outerwear industry of these, you know, beautiful, um, Italian fashion houses that will make you a beautiful wool coat or whatever it is. Um, but it's very rare that you can get a product that does both. Um, and, um, and it's interesting because if you look at a sector like the SUV sector, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago, um, apart from maybe a Range Rover, you know, there weren't many, there there was the good old sort of um, Mitsubishi Land Cruisers and um, Land Rover Defenders on one side. Um, And then luxury cars, which were, you know, Rolls Royces and Bentleys and things that, you know, you hired a driver to sit in the front and you sat in the back. Um, But now that sector of, of luxury SUVs where you've got, you know, the Bentley and the And the Lamborghini, and the Rolls Royce, and the Aston DBX, and you know all those sorts of cars, which are go anywhere, do anything, climb a mountain, cross a river on the outside, but inside it's all leather and walnut and eighteen speakers, and it's a it's a fabulous place to be. So, I think men really love and respect um, technology and performance and specification, um, but they want it served up in a way that that's going to make them look good and um, and feel good. So. I think it's this combination that we're trying to achieve, whereby we can make a jacket that will keep you alive at minus thirty, um, or even minus fifty. In the case of some of the pieces in development at the moment, but um, uh, but they look good rather than making you just look like a Teletubby, which which most of them do.
0: Well, there is certainly a lack of uh, good-looking performance stuff in the market. I mean, I see a lot of the brands now which are expensive, yeah, they're very shiny um and they are sort of marketed towards people who like to get skiing and stuff mm. but when you look at the construction they are the same down jacket that you bought 40 years ago yeah. there's, there's been no development in them
1: yeah that's right yeah um i mean it, it's interesting that you know some of the best <laughs> that some of the best down jackets um from a performance point of view that have been made um were made 40 years ago and um, because they were made um for climbers um and they were made using a, a construction um, technique called box baffling, which is where you have, um, you have the down that's injected or, or, or blown into a, into a baffle, into a, into a space. Um, but whereas a normal um, uh, down jacket, when you see people walking on the street, a normal down jacket is effectively a series of, well, it's two layers of fabric um, with, um, uh, with, a, with a stitch channel either side, and then mm. the down is blown in and then it's closed up. So what that means is that the down then has the space to loft and, and down only becomes effective as, a, as an insulator when it lofts and creates the warmth around itself and the warmth that it takes from your body is then all held in the tendrils of the quality of the down. Um, and that's what keeps you warm, right? Just like a sleeping bag. But then where that stitch channel is, you get cold spots. Um, yeah. and so, you know, and I'm sure we all know of jackets that, you know, it was a bit on the elbow, a bit on the shoulder, whatever, that where, where there's just no down or especially in older jackets, it all just slides down into the wrong places. Um, whereas what box wall baffling is, is where you've got the two layers, but you've effectively, if you think of it like a brick wall, you've got actually a, um, uh, if you were to be laying it flat, you've got a vertical wall, um, or vertical piece of fabric between and so that when the when the um, when the down lofts, it can loft into a three dimensional space. Um, that where there, so there are, there are no, therefore no um, no cold spots. Mm.
0: Um,
1: and so that that was kind of um, developed, yeah, thirty or forty years ago. <clears throat> and it's amazing that there are very few companies um, who are actually able to do that now uh, from a manufacturing point of view. Now, I mean, down is obviously still you know from a, a warmth to weight point of view. St- when you get the right quality of down it's still you know almost impossible to beat as an insulator um and and i think there are lots of there are lots of synthetics um which are terrific for lots of other reasons but they they aren't as warm as 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 pure 100 percent down um and goose you know goose down obviously um there's lots of different kinds of down but the very best down comes from older birds um so the If you take places like um, Hungary and Romania, they have a very strong goose eating tradition. They, they eat a lot of geese. And so the, the down <clears throat> that, that you get from those birds is, is, um, is, the down is developed, obviously, it's between the skin and the, and the feathers of the bird. Um, but the very, very finest down comes from older birds, um, normally five to six years old. And so, but there's only very small amounts of that. And... Um, it's very hard to get hold of we managed to get hold of it but um it's a jealously guarded secret
0: so the birds that they're eating aren't five or six years old yes they are well eventually they
1: are yes um when when they're eating those um but they um well so it's a byproduct of the food industry um so they are eating when they're older as well but i mean i'm sure they eat them at all kinds of ages but um the the very best down comes from the older birds
0: it's unusual for them to wait that long. I mean, normally we can't wait for the chicken to get large enough to, to eat it. Yeah, exactly.
1: Well, I'm sure maybe they, they, they're breeding them for both the down and the, uh, you know, and the meat, but they seem to like it. Like some people like mutton. I don't, but you know, <clears throat> some people like eat, eating older sheep rather than younger sheep.
0: <laughs> now, uh, let's, uh, sort of swerve back to, uh, to old Ernest for a, a moment. Um, I keep seeing uh, this uh, advert he originally placed in the newspapers before he was going off on his expedition, where he was looking for for good men and uh, gar- there was no guarantee of them returning and so forth. Men wanted for for hazardous journey. Exactly.
1: Yeah, you wouldn't they've, think there were many takers, but they've uh, returned doubtful honor and recognition in case of success.
0: Can you talk a bit about where he was heading and what the purpose was? Yeah, absolutely that that ad that we've all
1: seen was sadly apocryphal. It never ran. Um, it was, um, somebody, somebody made it up years later, which is a real shame because it's such a great, it's one of the best recruitment ads of all time. I think But um, um, <clears throat> it didn't, it didn't run. Um, yes. So what happened was so from about 1880, um, To 1922, um, there was this period of time known as the Heroic Age of Antarctic Exploration. Uh, And there were all kinds of people from various different countries, particularly the UK, Norway, Australia, um, and various other people as well, um, heading down to Antarctica um, with the, um, you know, with. With exploration and discovery on their minds, and also a sort of slightly colonial, putting the flag in the in the, in the ground for king and country. Um, and um, Shackleton originally or first went down to Antarctica um, with Captain Scott and was one of his his um, uh, on on his crew on board the Discovery. And then Shackleton's first command um, was in nineteen oh seven to nineteen oh nine, which was a ship called the Nimrod. Um, And they went down to Antarctica, and he led a a team of people with the intention of being the first to the South Pole. Um, But they got within 97 miles of the South Pole um, when Shackleton realized that they could get to the pole, but they had insufficient, basically they were about 50 pounds worth of food short of being able to get back. Um, And he decided that he would rather um, uh, not risk the, the lives of his crew and himself for glory and wrote back to his wife rather, what was it? It was uh, rather a live donkey than a dead lion. So he wrote to his wife. <laughs> um, and then of course, you know, three years later, um, Captain Scott was that, was that dead lion. So in, in, uh, <clears throat> in the race to the pole between Amazon and Scott, Amazon famously beat Scott by about a month to the South pole to discover it for Norway. Um, and, um, uh, Scott and his, uh, uh, and his team arrived at the south pole found a norwegian flag and a message from amazon and um you know the photographs tell the story um how incredibly disappointed and um heartbroken they must have felt and um then they you know in full of melancholy made their way back um but then got caught in a blizzard and uh, they were only 12 miles away from one ton depot, which was the the food depot that had enough food for them to sustain the journey, um, but sadly perished in their tent. Um, so by that point, um, the, the pole had been um, claimed by by Amundsen. <clears throat>
0: um,
1: so Shackleton was keen to um, you know keen to establish a new record um, for king and country, and he wanted to be the first person ever or run the first expedition ever to traverse the whole of the Antarctic continent from one side to the other. And he created a thing called the Imperial Transantarctic antarctic Expedition um, and pulled together, using uh, using similar words to the Men Wanted for Hazardous Journey ad, um, actually had his base on 4 Burlington Street, just around the corner from, Shackleton, from our Shackleton store now on Regent Street, um, where he interviewed people with very um, uh, unusual uh, interview techniques like making them tell jokes and make, making them whistle a tune etc um, because he wanted to see that these people were people that knew how to you know have good energy and and, and be positive and be optimistic and in fact he said um, the courage the 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 quality that he looks for in most people is optimism he called optimism pure moral courage you know the idea that um if you believe that there is a way and that there could be a way then there is always hope, but if you don't believe that, you know, if you don't believe that you're going to survive, then you probably won't. Um, and so he just, you know, he he believed that people that could summon optimism in even the worst situations were were of stronger moral stuff than the others. Um, and that's what he looked for in his men. So they went off down there. And in fact, they were just about to leave. Um, they were in Margate actually, um, on the ship, the endurance. And, um, uh, and the the very first news of world war 1 breaking out um was was telegrammed um uh, and um i think it was august uh, 24 uh, 1914 he Shackleton then sent a um uh, a telegram to the to the king and to churchill saying who was first lord of the admiralty in charge of the war and laying down the ship and his men you know for for king and country saying you know we we'll, we won't do this we'll do whatever you want and um uh received a one-word telegram uh within within a few hours which was just proceed so he was given the uh, the opportunity to proceed um mm. on his journey to uh to at that point buenos aires um got to buenos aires they carried on down there then they they were then when they left argentina they were heading down into the weddell sea and the weddell sea is um um it's about a thousand miles across um, between the Antarctic Peninsula and, and Eastern Antarctica. <clears throat> and at various times of the year, the the sea ice in the Weddell Sea, uh, in the summer it diminishes, and obviously in the winter it, it grows. Um, and they were heading down there, and, and like I said, his plan was to, was to cross Antarctica from one side to the other. And he needed two ships, um, so he had the Endurance, and then there was another ship um, called the Aurora, which was sent to the other side from New Zealand. And the job for the other people on the Ross Sea side of of Antarctica was to essentially um, lay storage and food depots and fuel depots towards the pole on the opposite side because of the amount of gear that you would need the plan was that you would you know once got to the pole headed to the other side and then you would pick up these depots that would sustain them there on. So um, they were heading towards the land um, to the Antarctic continent across the Weddell Sea, um, they'd been warned by local sealers and whalers that the Antarctic sea ice was, or the Weddell Sea sea ice was, uh, worse. Than, by the way, Nick, I could do this for two hours now, so you better give me an idea about how much of this you want. Okay, um, so um, uh, they were they were heading down. They were given, you know, they, were, they were warned that the sea ice was um, unseasonably bad and unseasonably northerly. Um, anyway, they cracked on, um, and they, you know, they experienced icebergs and then pancake ice, which is floating round lumps of ice. Um, and then, um, eventually, um, the ship could go no further. Um, that wasn't particularly unusual because what they were used to happening was, um, being able to break free uh, of the ice and then a lead would open up and they then would be able to, you know, steam forward. It was a sailing ship, but it was had a powerful coal driven engine as well. Um, So, um, but they got stuck in the, in the ice and then it opened up a bit and they managed to move a bit more and they managed to move a bit more, but then eventually um, the ice just locked them, uh, absolutely locked them tight um, and they couldn't move. So then what they felt was, okay, well, we'll have to overwinter here. Um, So rather than Shackleton and his men being able to then, um, Effectively leave the ship and disembark the all the equipment and the dogs and the, all the stuff to be able to then, you know, head off on the expedition. They didn't even start the expedition. Basically, um, they got stuck in the ice, and the ice was then <clears throat> moving um, in a well, in the circumpolar current, moving in a um, clockwise direction up towards the peninsula. Um, and they felt that as they were then going to, or they hoped that as, as they were then going to be get carried north, the ice would melt a bit and they would then get um, set free. Um, but um, over a period of about seven months, um, these ridges of pressure uh, of the ice just built up around the ship. Um, and then one day the whole ship just lurched up and was lifted up at the back. Um, and, um, and it sort of tore the rudder area off um, and the boat started taking on water. Um, and and then over this period, which is very famously documented by um, by Frank Hurley in his amazing photographs, um, the ship essentially was engulfed um, by the ice. Uh, and um, with the cracking of spars and terrible moaning of, of oak, um, was splintered and eventually swallowed by the ice. And so there they are. It's 1915. Europe's at war. There's no GPS. There's no radio. Nobody knows where they are. Um, and they're a thousand miles from anybody else. Uh, and it's the Antarctic winter. It's minus 30. Um, and they're on the ice. And the ship's gone down. And Shackleton says, Ship and stores have gone, boys. Let's go home. And they all look <laughs> at him like he's a madman because um, they all think they're going to die. Um, But what, through his amazing genius of of, um, leadership in adversity, which is actually taught as a module now at Harvard Business School by Professor Nancy Cohen, who's recently judged our Shackleton Medal, which I could come back to, Um, through his leadership and his um, unique kind of personal gift of charisma uh, and mucking in—I mean, he was always the last, the last person to eat. He was always the first person on the floor scrubbing the floor. You know, he set set an example. But he had this. I mean, I'd, obviously, I'd love to have met him because he just, by all accounts, had this amazing, natural, personal charisma and energy that just just buoyed people up. You know, he, he was described as a as a as a mighty rush of wind by by people, and I think that meant means in the positive way rather than. a, <laughs> a But he could hold. I mean, years later, he would hold. Um, you know, places like the Wigmore Hall in London that you might know, which is two and a half thousand people, big concert hall. He would stand there every afternoon with a glass of whiskey and some lantern slides and do a lecture for two and a half hours to two and a half thousand people without amplification and hold a room you know breathless he just had this incredible charisma so his men loved him that's why they called him they called him the boss um and um although he had all kinds of foibles and plenty of things he was definitely not perfect um they adored him because he just had this amazing positivity and spirit and made them feel that they could do things that they didn't think they could do. Um, so ships and stores gone, let's go home. Um, they camp on the ice, hoping again, the, the ice is then going to break up. It does start to break up. Literally there are people falling, you know, tents falling through the ice in the middle of the night, uh, with screams, with people, you know, being pulled out of the ice. Eventually they pull the, the three lifeboats, um, about uh, for for a couple of weeks across the ice and again there's a very famous picture uh, that Frank Hurley took of them pulling these lifeboats with, with stores and things inside them um and um they get to a point where the where the, the waters opened up and they can launch the boats and then over a period of a couple of weeks they managed to navigate to a completely desolate barren island uh, called Elephant Island um near the it was on the eastern side of the Antarctic peninsula um, and there's nobody there. It's just completely just it's just penguins um, and seals, etc. Um, and they get there. They they turn two of the boats over to make a make a a, um, a sort of temporary hut to live in, and then they butcher a couple of the boats, um, the two boats for more wood and more sails and spars, etc. And they take the biggest of the lifeboats, which was only twenty three feet long, um, called the James Caird, named after one of the benefactors of the uh, of the expedition um and they add mark because these are just rowing boats so they add masts um they um they build up the thwarts they build up the flanks um they then uh stretch a canvas um uh deck over the top um and they build this up into a into a effectively a sailing lifeboat but it's still hardly got a keel to it i mean to to sail you need you need a keel to be able to Counteract the the leeway that's created by the wind onto the sails to go to make it go in a straight direction rather than just drift sideways right um, he put about about a ton and a half of pebbles from the beach to give it enough um, enough weight down in the water because he was terrified of the thing being blown over <clears throat> and so he then picked five men um so there were six of them in this boat called the James Caird, leaving the other twenty two men to so the twenty eight crew altogether leaving twenty two on this island in Um, and he left his second in command, Frank Wilde, in charge of the other 22. He took five of these guys with him. And then what followed has just sort of become known as the most incredible feat of survival in the history of, you know, exploration, which was in this tiny 23 foot boat. The actual boat now is at Dulwich College, um, in South London. And we had a perfect replica of it in our last store when we were, when we had a store on the King's Road in Chelsea, um, which had also done the journey. Century later, by some friends of ours, um, and um, they they took this boat 800 miles across the Southern Ocean in hurricane force winds, um, 50, 50 feet high waves, um, and managed to navigate, only getting two two sun sights on the way. So, on using a sextant and then a series of um, uh, of tables to be able to um, work out their latitude and longitude, um, and eventually landed against all odds at, uh, to, at South Georgia, which is in the Falklands group. Um, but they landed on the western side of the island and the island is has a, um, a huge mountain range right down the middle of it. Um, so it's kind of like arriving at somewhere like Geneva and thinking, right, let's go to Turin um, and having to navigate the Alps in between. Um, and of course, it's all un- uncharted. There's nothing, there's nobody knows. There's literally uncharted. No one's gotten ever drawn a chart of it. So Shackleton and his men um they they pull nails out of the boat um and put the nails into their boots um to, to you know to effectively act as crampons on the ice. Um they take some ropes, et cetera. They had to leave three of them down um in a cave by the by the seaside with the boat. Um so Shackleton um and Tom Crean uh, and Worsley, who was the skipper. Then mountaineered over the island, um, bearing, wearing clothes that they had been wearing for two years, um, and um, uh, and eventually they were. I mean, they were so exhausted. He wouldn't let them sleep because uh, he knew that if they if they f- fell asleep, they would just die of exhaustion. They never wake up because of the cold, um, and and things were so bad at the end. They had so far to go that they just decided to take the coils of rope that they had and effectively form them into sledges and sit on these on these on these ropes, hold on to each other. And they did a thousand feet in one go, sliding down a glacier <laughs> uh, to eventually land near Stromness, which is the whaling station there. Um, and um, walked into the uh, to the whaling station uh, officer, you know, with little kids on the street just sort of running away in terror, thinking, "Who the hell are these guys?" Um, he walks into the whaling station management, and says, "My name is Ernest Shackleton," and they can't believe it because they think, you know, they've not seen him for two years, and they think he's all dead. <clears throat> they think they're all dead. Um, and, um, so then he, um, he borrows a boat or borrows a ship and then heads off down to the Weddell sea to try and save the others. But guess what? There's a load of sea ice and they can't get anywhere near it. And then he goes back and then he borrows another ship, can't get near it. And then eventually manages to convince the Chilean government to lend them a, an ice breaking tug called the Yelko and they managed to, um uh with the Yelko get through the ice and down to um elephant island uh and um there's an amazing um shot of this tug on the horizon and then there's a there's a rowing boat in the in the in the foreground where shackleton is rowing towards um to the men taken by by frank hurley who's obviously on the land and shackleton when he's within earshot shouts out to frank hurley are you all well and and frank hurley shouts back we are all well boss and it's at that point that he realises that he saved every single one of them. Um, so, despite all of that, all twenty-eight of them survived. And he he, um, he wrote to his uh, to to his wife saying, um, "I've done it; not a man lost, and we've been through hell." Um, that is one story. <laughs> <laughs> that was the very short version. Um, Good lord! But um, yeah, it's just it's just um, so rich with incredible. I mean, it's, it's also the story served amazingly by Shackleton, because he had a real gift with words. He was a real lover of poetry. Um, and, um, some people are a bit unkind. I think he was not, not a bad poet either. Um, uh, but he certainly loved words. He was, a, he loved Browning. In fact, um, there's a quote on Shackleton's gravestone It's a Browning quote, which says, um, I hold that a man should strive to the uttermost for his life's set prize. Um, work out what it is that you really want to do in life and don't stop till you get it. You know, it's a pretty good motto for all of us. I think
0: before we um, started recording, I, I was doing a little research and I, I found out that Shackleton is actually, his grave is on Great on South Georgia. I was looking, I thought, now where on earth in the world is this? <laughs> so I Google mapped it and I found this little Island and I was zooming out, 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 out. I mean, it's a credit to their navigational skills that they even found that little island yes. in all that sea. Well, that's it. I mean,
1: Frank Frank Worsley was a human pilot whale. It's it's unbelievable the fact that he, like I said, over a over a fourteen day, eight hundred mile j- boat journey in you know hurricane force winds uh, and hardly any any clear skies, they managed to get only two sun sights with a spe- sextant. Bearing in mind, I mean, I've tried to take I tried to do astral navigation on a boat. And I was on a 40 footer when I crossed the Atlantic, um, with a fair amount of freeboard where you can actually see the horizon reasonably well, um, in probably a meter swell, and it's still incredibly hard to get an accurate sunset. Um, uh, and the fact that he only got two in that level of, uh, you know, in, in those conditions on that journey, which then allowed him, because the last one he got was about four days before. I'm trying to think of what the equivalent is. It's like, imagine if you were, um. I don't know imagine if you're looking at a football pitch um and you've got something smaller than a marble um to hit and you with another marble (laughs) and you're trying to uh, It's not a very good analogy but in other words the the margin for error you know even very tiny error would have meant that they would have missed that island and they would have just sailed straight on into you know into the south atlantic and then that would have been it and it was interesting that shackleton when they were deciding how much food to take um he said, there's no point in us taking any more than three days of food, sorry, three weeks of food, because if we've gone three weeks, we've missed the island and then we're dead. And I'd rather leave the food with, you know, with the guys who are there at Elephant Island on the hope that maybe one whaler or somebody comes in and eventually finds them. Um, so no, it's miraculous that they, that, uh, they managed to find it. So Grippliken is a, it's, it's a Norwegian word, is it? Or Norwegian name?
0: Well, Greet would be a, uh, a cooking pot. Right. So okay. it's uh, And veek is a, a cove. So it's a sort of cooking pot cove. Oh, right. Okay. Which might be for the whaling, the blubbery. Yes. And yeah. Stuff they were making there. Ooh. That's um, super grim.
1: I mean, awful, awful kinds of places. I went to um, – there's a place called Deception Island uh, near uh, – just off the Antarctic Peninsula, which was the center of the whaling industry from about 1840. Um, and it's actually, it's, the, it's a um, caldera, it's a, it's a sunken caldera of a volcano. Um, and in the center, they reckon there are the, the you know, the carcasses of about 50,000 whales down there, of all the whales, because the, they used to capture them and then take them into the mm. beach there and then discard them. Um, <clears throat> and there's all these old oil drums and, um, uh, and the processing plants and stuff. But, I mean, I've never been somewhere where I just felt the misery of, kind of human souls you know from from centuries before like that it was oh, it was just in the air i still shiver thinking about it now just super grim so imagine how awful it must be to to sort of live down there and and but by contrast what an incredible um sense of solace it must have been for shackleton to find a place that with you know with humans there after all that time on their own
0: it was quite sort of um symmetrical that he'd find the whaling station there because um i didn't realize until the recent news of that they'd located his boat mm. that uh, it was made just half an hour down the road here in the whaling town of Sunderland, where a lot of these whalers would go out from
1: nice symmetry yeah so that's that's i mean it's obviously very exciting for us um what's happened recently because um uh, i mean the ship the ship went down um you know, in, in, um, as we know in 1915 and, um, that was 107 years ago. And, um, they've been, there's been lots of speculation for years about whether it could ever be found. And if there would, you know, even if they could get down there, would it be, uh, in any shape? Um, and so to see the photographs and the, and the video that you, you've probably seen of the, of, of the endurance, um, that the, the, you know, the stars shining brightly on the stern with endurance written over the top of it. It just really took my breath away when I saw it because I'd been looking at pictures of that ship, you know, for pretty much all of my adult life. Um, and so to see the thing still existing, but three kilometers underwater on the seabed um, was quite a moment. Well, um, I was lucky enough to um, uh, to meet with a guy called Menson Bound, who's the, who's the director of exploration on the Endurance 22 expedition, um, who was the guy that was responsible for finding the ship. And in fact him and dan snow the historian were both wearing um appropriately wearing uh, shackleton Parker's on the um uh, on the on the expedition um and um he said it was quite an incredible story because um they had an area of, of the seabed that they were mapping um they've got this this sonar and they've got this um these submersible obviously submersible submarines that were autonomous you know ro- robot controlled submarines um that they sent down <clears throat> three thousand meters uh, you know, onto the seabed. Um, and so they're just really, you know, there's there's a load of people in a room, you in know, in in looking at, effectively looking at um, computer data to to map the floor of, of the seabed. And they've been doing it for about three weeks and um, they'd, they'd completed about 97% of the, of the potential area, which they'd mapped according to the very last Latin long that um, Frank Worsley had taken back in, in 1915. So they knew, according to him, where the ship had gone down, um, but of course, the, um, you know, there's always a question about the accuracy of the, the absolute accuracy of, of that um, of the Latin long recorded then. But also, as a ship travels, you know, three kilometers through the water, um, and with a, a hydrodynamic shape, you'd imagine that it is going to actually move. It's not just going to fall straight; it's going to actually propel itself in one direction or the other. Anyway, they got to a point they only had three days left on this expedition, which um, this is, you know, a couple of months ago, um, which is obviously extremely expensive and, you know, hugely resource-heavy, et cetera. Um, They only had three days left because of the weather window. The the, the ice was going to come in again and potentially trap them as well, so they had to get out. Um, And rather than constantly using the ice-breaking capabilities of the ship to keep breaking the ice around them where they were, they just said, let's just let the ice, you know, we'll just stay in the ice for a bit and we'll just go with this circumpolar current of the, uh, of the ice. Um, and, and then a day and a half later, um, they found the endurance exactly beneath where the, the Agulhas, the ship had actually drifted to. So it was almost like the ice had taken them to the ship. You know, it's incredible. Um, which I love that story. I think it's got a lovely poetry to it, but, um, so yeah, they found it and um, they've surveyed it. it. It's a relic, or it's actually a, um, uh, it's a monument under the Antarctic Treaty, so it cannot be touched. As Alexandra Shackleton says, "No rummaging." Um, I believe she actually owns it um, legally. She owns it under Lloyd's Register because, as the as the direct descendant of Ernest Shackleton, it was obviously registered and insured at Lloyd's, um, and therefore the ownership of the ship passes through you know in a hereditary way. So. I wouldn't want to put that on the record, but I understand from her that she officially owns it. Um, and um, but she was very clean, no rummaging allowed. Um, uh, and uh, but they they they've shot an incredible amount of of, um, of photography and film at very very high, you know, f- um, four and five k definition to be able to create what I think is going to believe what I believe is going to be quite an incredible. Um, Uh, you know, a a video graphic and three-dimensional expedition and story about the whole thing. So I don't want to say too much, but I know that um, so that the expedition rights um, are owned by National Geographic, which is now owned by Disney. um, And we understand that Disney and National Geographic are going to put a significant amount of money into bringing the whole story to life um, so that we will be able to see at uh, very very great detail mm. what the um what the ship looks like now and what the deck of it looks like and you can see frank wilde's boots, and you know they're his because he's got an initials on them I and mean, it's just unbelievable to mm. to to reconnect that historical story back today um you know with the with the, with the level of detail to kind of complete the the whole thing and it's real and it's alive you know it's, I just love it it's very exciting.
0: It just sort of ties it nicely up with a little bow on. Yeah. Now, if they just found his watch as well, now, then <laughs> exactly, <laughs> it really would have. Well,
1: maybe they could go back and get it. Um, <laughs> so, well, as you can see, I'm reasonably um, <clears throat> reasonably interested in in Shackleton and the uh, and the story because I just think it's an incredible um, uh, it's, a, it's an incredible story that's rich with with all kinds of you know mm-hmm. um, symbolism and uh, and um, and human endeavour. Um, and that's the that's what we've sort of built this brand on, and um, and it's why the experiences part of the brand is is so important. Because I think, as you said earlier on, I think there are other brands, there are outerwear brands that will you know create a nice jacket for you, and one that will work. Um, but when you think about why people buy a jacket, you know, an expensive thirteen hundred pound jacket that will go to minus forty, it's not really that they want to buy the jacket; it's that they want to go to somewhere where it's minus 40 that's magnificent, that's extreme, that's incredible, and to have a sort of once in a lifetime experience. So it kind of, it's like buying a car and not having a road to be able to drive it on. So we felt right from the start that it was really important that we would build a, an experiences business so that um, people could you know, come into this brand and discover Shackleton and everything that he means um, through their own experience. So um right now up in fincer which is what about <clears throat> i want to say about th- 250 miles away from you something like that 300 miles
0: oh, out it's west it's about halfway from here to bergen yeah so it's up on the mountain yeah for me mostly known as um, where they made uh, the winter scenes from the empire yeah. strikes
1: back yeah that's right that's it um on the i would say i'm going to get it wrong Hardangervidda national park is that right something
0: like that that was uh, oh, possible possible okay <laughs> um
1: and um so we've run five weeks worth of, of shackleton challenges um where you can come along as a complete novice and have a, an amazing polar experience and learn polar skills um, which culminates in being able to go out <clears throat> on the glacier um and do everything learn everything you need to know to be able to uh, to, to transport yourself to ski um, and to uh, set up camp and cook and feed and spend the night on the ice uh, at minus twenty or, or more, according to the wind chill, um, and then um, and then come back safely. And it's being run by uh, our director of expeditions, um, Captain Louis Rudd, who's um, an ex SAS um, soldier, but he's also an incredible record-breaking polar explorer. Um, and so I guess it's a bit like um, I mean I'm a sailor. So if I want if I was going to go sailing and had the opportunity to go sailing with Ben Ainsley, for example, who's a you know the most successful sort of Olympic sailor of all time, it's not just going sailing; it's going sailing with the best. And that's what we're offering people: the chance to be able to go and learn polar skills and have an experience, you know, that's really really alien and unusual to most people. A real luxury to be so far away from any email or any any kind of um, airplanes or any kind of human pollution, if you like, out in the wilds um, and to learn how to survive and have a brilliant time and and um, and overcome the, the the fear and the trepidation that you would have to, to go on such a challenge. So that's the idea. We're calling them Shackleton Challenges and each one of them, there's a Polar Skills one, there's an Expedition one, which is five days out on the ice and about 120 kilometers trek. Um, we're launching them. We've got them, an Alpine challenge, which is um, down in the in the French Alps. We've got one in Svalbard, one in Iceland, um, one on the Antarctic Peninsula, but we're also running a last degree challenge, which enables you to ski the last 60 nautical miles from 89 degrees south to 90 south, which is the South Pole. Um, so... So this is a brand that yeah you can buy a beanie hat and you can buy a coat but you can also we can get you to the South Pole as well um, and and the, the idea is that um, you know when you when you buy our kit you know that it's been tested in these extremes um, and also that when you go on one of these trips you know that you can buy the kit that's needed for it so and all of that is kind of imbued with the um, with the invincibility cloak of Ernest Shackleton's spirit and memory on your shoulders. There I go. I've gone into hyperbolic market marketing mode now. But so that's the
0: dream. <laughs> I was just sitting here thinking, it sort of brought me back to my, my old days of my um army service here in Norway when we were sleeping in tents outside in the winter and it was bloody miserable. So I can confirm that minus twenty is genuinely awful unless you have the right gear. Um I was thinking. Uh, I recently wondered what the word tactical meant because I see all sorts of gear, all sorts of stuff as tactical. this, tactical that, and I think it meant it comes down to being fit for purpose. And, and I guess that's what you're proving. I mean, you're using your gear. You're going to the South Pole. You're taking people out in the cold and proving it's worth. Yeah, that's
1: right. I mean, it's just it's really important. Obviously, if people are going to pay that kind of money, and um, uh, you know, they need to be able to rely on it. Um, you know, that functionally it's really going to deliver against what their expectations are um, and that it's been properly tested by people that know what they're doing. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, well, it's crucial. <laughs> it's, it would be the worst possible thing for us to send somebody out or for somebody to buy one of our jackets and, um, head out somewhere extreme and, um, and for it to let them down. So, you know, it's, it's really important that we test and test thoroughly. Um, so we've actually got a guy, um, um, a very amazing guy, a real, um, I don't know what I'd call him. Well, he's a hes a kind of thermal scientist almost. He's, his name is Gord Batania, and he was head of field testing at Arcteryx um, for about 15 years. He lives in Vancouver, and he, he runs all our product performance and testing program. Um, so right. Vancouver's an interesting place. You might've been there where it's completely surrounded by sea and mountains and everybody spends all their time hiking trails on, and out on mountain bikes and climbing and ice climbing and you know, all that stuff. It's very outdoors lifestyle. Um, so it's a great place to be able to send kit at any time of the year and get the kit put through its motions by a guy that likes, you know, punishing gear. It just comes back shredded until, you know, until you send him one that, you know, comes back unshredded, you know, you know, you're all right.
0: Sorry to interrupt, but at this point in the pod, you're probably wondering, where are the ads? I miss the ads. And you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, enter Garmology, and it's easy. And, uh, yeah, let's continue on. Okay, because I noticed a few years ago you were making more traditional down jackets in the UK, but for this year it's... They're more Parkers in recycled nylon, I think. Yeah, that's right. And part of a modular system.
1: Yes. So the, I mean, we we originally started off with quite a um, strong intent to focus our manufacturing in, on the UK, um, um, but um, unfortunately, the the sort of British manufacturing industry um, stopped innovating at some point in the 1970s. Um, and so it's very difficult to get, um, modern technical gear made that has, um, you know, that's, that's laser cut and the seam sealed, uh, in the way that you can get made in Italy or in the far east. Um, the, the whole process for creating a piece of high performance gear now is, is, um, as you'd expect, it's, um, <clears throat> it's an advanced manufacturing process rather than, um, <clears throat> excuse me, rather than, um a workshop process, which was when we were working in the UK, they were skilled artisans making brilliant gear, but, um, in very small quantities. Um, and although it worked from a performance point of view, um, the levels, or I don't, I really don't want to be rude because they're amazing people, but, um, let's say the levels of, um, refinement in Italy, as you'd expect, are, are higher than, than what we could get in the UK. Um, but then in terms of materials, um, yeah, we took a decision uh, a couple of years ago. Well, we want we've been wanting to make everything recycled for quite a long time um, from re- recycled materials, um, but of course, performance was always the issue. Whether you could get something that would really perform to the standard, whether it had the breathability, the waterproofing, etc. Um, and um, but now the the quality of um, uh, uh, um, <clears throat> performance that you can get from you know, companies like Sympatex in, in um, you know, in Switzerland, and, you know, the, the quality is amazing. So you, you can now get the same levels of the same hand feel, um, uh, the same color intensity, um, and the same, you know, p- technical performance from recycled fabrics than you can from virgin fabrics. Not not across every type of fabric, but certainly in the, in the world that we're looking at, um, it's now it's there, it is available, so we'd be stupid not to do it, not not to use it. So this year's range, every one of our jackets is made from recycled fabrics
0: and goose down from mature geese, um, yes, with a known origin.
1: Yes, exactly. And well, it's all traceable. Yeah. So there's a thing called Responsible Down Standard (RDS) where you can track yeah where the um, where the down has come from.
0: And you've also moved to a modular way of uh, adding liners, which can be switched.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, I think, <clears throat> and actually, we're looking at the moment um, in our product pipeline. We've been looking at rainwear a lot um, because I think, particularly in the UK, um, you know, I don't, I don't think we've had a, a I don't think we've had a day so far this winter. So we're now in April. Maybe we've had a couple of days where it's gone below zero, but not many. Maybe one or two. Um, You're looking jealous. Um, And actually, um, it's quite nice to wear a really warm parker up to about, you know, minus five, sorry, about to five, six, seven plus. Um, But as soon as you get to about 10 degrees, wearing a big parker is just, um, it's just untenable. It's just too warm. And actually, the problem that most of us have um, in the UK is is wind and rain. That's the thing that makes life, you know, miserable. Um, Mm. And so, um, you know, we believe that, there's a big opportunity for 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 rainwear or waterproof wear, um, same like with Parkers, where, um, you know, you're getting very high performance, um, but you're also getting something that's been really nicely tailored and built with all the detailing, et cetera, et cetera. So you don't feel like a kind of, you know, school kid on an outing <laughs> wearing an anorak, which is like lots of these things look like. Um, <clears throat> But within that, so we started off thinking, right, well let's, you know, we've got six different models that we could make, a short one, a long one, a field Parker one a bit like this, one a bit like that. Um, But actually when talking to particularly younger people, but most people um, doing some research, we've just found that most people are now looking for versatility. Um, They'd rather have one high performance jacket that does everything that they paid more money for than a ski jacket, you know, and a waterproof raincoat uh, and a um, sailing jacket, for example. So actually from an environmental point of view, from a value point of view and a cost point of view, um, if we we think that if we can make products that are really versatile and cross, you know, if you like cross verticals, so if you're applying them to to activities, whether it's, you know, for example, sailing or, or mountaineering or um, <clears throat> or skiing something you know they're essentially the same sorts of products um they do the same sorts of things they need to be breathable um they need to be incredibly waterproof you need to be able to move in them properly um uh but we think if i think a lot of people would be interested in spending more on on a jacket like that that they really love that really does everything than having three different jackets that you spend i mean i'm lucky if i go skiing you know for two weeks in a year and so i've got a ski jacket that you know That I spent money on that somebody's made and that's taken resources from the world, you know, that's sitting in a sitting in a bag, you know, in the attic most of the year. Um, So, so I think that's probably quite a good solution to make more versatile product, um, rather than, um, you know, lots of um, vertical specific product.
0: I suppose it also comes down to a question of fashion, whether you're making jackets that are that's a sort of outside of mm. fashion, they're just great jackets, yeah. or whether like your ski jacket, which when you turn up next year to go skiing, everyone's going to say, hey, look, Martin, he's got his ski jacket from two years ago.
1: Yes, uh, yeah, maybe. I'm sure there are people like that, but I think I don't think that's our audience. I think our audience is people that want to buy something that's technically superior uh, and that's a very high quality um and that's not very heavily branded um and that maybe doesn't have this year's outlandish color i saw a, i saw one of those wgs wsgn whatever it is i can never remember um trend things and that that really big you know very powerful purple is going to be back next year you know like everyone's going to run to purple again <laughs> it's like, what's the point in that you know it's just i mean sure some people will love that but i just don't think that's our audience. You know a fashion audience. Let's be honest. Will want to buy a Montclair jacket or a or a Canada Goose jacket with you know the name of the brand written as as loudly and luridly on the jacket as possible. I just think there's an opportunity and a, a gap in the market, certainly for our sort of customer who doesn't want to scream and shout what the brand is. Yes, they want to wear a nice logo and they want that logo to mean something, but they're not going to define themselves by it. Um, uh, so I think. I think, you know, classic quality will speak for itself if it's, if the performance level is there and if it really, really works, you know, it's like things you love. Some people just play, find a car that they like and they, and they just keep on buying that car. I'm sure in Scandinavia, just people love Saabs, you know. So, I mean, they obviously don't make them anymore, but <laughs> years and years, people would just buy Saabs because they were yeah. they're brilliant, you know. um you know, some people that like nine elevens, they just own it. They just buy themselves a new nine eleven every three years because it's an amazing car, and and you just can't better it if that's the kind of car that you want. So, um, you know, we would much rather create a product that is going to a jacket that's just going to endure uh, and get better and better and better um, in increments every year. So, the harken that I know you've you've um, kindly uh, uh, tested and reviewed. We're bringing that out again this year yes in slightly different colors but with slightly different tweaks you know it'll be a bit lighter um it'll have pockets in slightly different positions but it's essentially you know the same jacket um because we just want it to get better and better and better and build a reputation and some equity around that particular model rather than every year you know throwing them out burning them giving them away or whatever and um bringing out a whole lot of new jackets i think particularly in in the outerwear industry where um, you know, so much goes into making a jacket like that in terms of componentry um, and time and cost and the materials and everything. It's a real responsibility to create product that you don't throw away and that 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 um can, that we can continue to sell year after year after year um, so that it doesn't become obsolete.
0: I was going to mention about the Harkon jacket or Harkon, as we say in away. the double A's and all. all? Um, or. Okay. I've, I've been struggling to find... Uh, leg wear of suitable um, warmth, because I'd wear the jacket outside with just a t-shirt under. Yeah, it'd be about minus fifteen and a howling cold wind. Yes. I'd be up fine upper body. Yeah, but my legs, which no, is it blowing straight through whatever I put on. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, we 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 um we have some salopets coming out, um, but they are very they are they're mission pro range. So th- we we make gear specifically for explorers and the salopets. Have a unique feature, which you might imagine, uh, which is what's called a drop seat, which means that you okay. essentially <laughs> uh, take an extended, full toilet break um, without taking the whole thing off. It's um, so effectively you manage to zip down the back and uh, and, and squat and do your business um, <clears throat> into a, into an ice hole that you've dug for yourself. Um, but so they're probably not appropriate for you just yet. But we will be bringing out. Um, uh, well, actually, Gord in in uh, in Vancouver just insists on calling them pants. So, but let's keep them calling them trousers for now on. There will be trousers. Yeah, they'll, they'll, there's there's a there's a pair of Explorer Salopets with the features I mentioned, and also um, we have um, some some very good thermal trousers coming out next year, which I'm I'm not going to go into detail on. <laughs> but um in <laughs> okay. terms of the of, because we're still um experimenting with different insulation types at the moment, both synthetic and down
0: okay interesting um, now, given what you do, given where you go with it, sustainability i I often ask uh, people when I talk to them what does sustainability mean to you and I get the impression that. For some brands, it's a sort of thing they have to mention, and they have to say they're well into it. Um, But, I mean, you're arranging tours to Antarctica up in the mountains. Uh, You're not producing more than you have to. I mean, I love the concept of modular jackets where Mm. you can put a liner in if it's really cold. You can wear the liner if it's not too cold. You can wear just the parka or whatever. Mm. And you're using the the goose down, which is traceable and the recycled materials. Where do you sort of fit into the sustainable world? Um,
1: I think, I think there's a few different, um, layers to it. I know it's, it's, um, obviously it's a rightfully a very hot topic and there's a lot of greenwash and there's a lot of BS being talked about it. I, I think the the first principle for us is that we are, we're not a fashion brand. Um, and we are we make in low quantities and we make slowly um, and we make product that will last for years. So, um, you know, Land Rover Defender lovers will be quick to tell you that in many ways the Land Rover Defender, although it's got a big diesel engine on it, um, is actually one of the most environmentally sustainable cars of all time because about seventy five percent of them are still on the road. Um, whereas actually. Because actually, about about a third of the environmental impact of of a car is is the whole process of building of making it, and the, and all the manufacturing and everything that goes into it. And in fact, is one of the big issues with with the whole electric vehicle thing um, is the amount of um, uh, uh, effort and the footprint of making an electric car, as well as what you're going to do with the batteries afterwards is a big issue. Anyway, we're not here to talk about cars, um, but the point, therefore, of um, you know, I'm not expecting anybody to buy a new Shackleton jacket every year. Um, uh, what I'm hoping for is that they'll buy a jacket um, that's going to last them a long time. And then maybe they'll buy a sweater and then maybe they'll buy, you know, one or two other things. Um, but, you know, our, our jackets should absolutely last people a very long time. Um, and so I think buying something of quality that will endure. Um, is a natural, is a a fundamental part of what sustainability is all about rather than just keep buying something, you know, new every year because you want a new one. Um, and that links to what I was saying about the versatility of product, having something that can do lots of things, being a Swiss army knife of a jacket rather than a very specialist jacket. Um, when it comes to supply chain stuff, um, you know, we're small, we know all our factories, um, we work with five different factories in various different places. We've been to them all. Um, we've met them all, you know, uh, and we know that the, that the product is being made there by those people. I really like that whole, I made your clothes movement where you can see exactly who made it. Mm. Um, I think that's really good. Um, I think, um, you know, some of the componentry stuff is naturally quite hard just that, you know, you might have a trim that's either a, you know, a, um, a zip extender or a zip or, or a, um a piece of branding or something that you think you know where it's come from, but you're not exactly sure um, because it's, you know, four steps down a supply chain. So we've recently hired um, a new production manager um, whose job it is, is to really push into that and really understand that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I certainly wouldn't want to stand up and say that we're the the best out there at all, and we're just doing what we can. Um, And the decisions that we've made, from a product strategy point of view, around making small quantities with product that, that's that's built to last, um, and making the decision on on recycled fabrics are you know ones that we that we feel very solid about. Um, but you know we're not particularly shouting about it all. What we're most shouting about is that this is high quality kit um, that um, that looks good. That's I you know that's what I want people to to take out most most of all about Shackleton, and then it's a you know, it's uh, an expected um uh an expected reassuring um uh fact that when you look under the bonnet actually it's being made properly, you know, in a in a sustainable way.
0: Well, it's sort of part of the whole uh, buy better, buy yeah. less, wear it yeah. longer. Yeah. If you're gonna wear it longer, it has to actually last yes. and be something you want to wear. Yeah. No, so, a- I mean it's no use buying brilliant stuff <laughs> or expensive stuff, but if you don't want to wear it then it's just sort of yeah well.
1: no and we are going to look at um uh what well, we're doing a sort of business case model at the moment on hiring as well you know for some people that might you know they're going to Iceland for a week or something um they might not want to spend 1200 pounds on a hawken as i now know it's called um and um but actually maybe they'd like to borrow one um and that that could be a good way of of introducing people to the brand um and getting some word of mouth around, you know, our sustainability approach.
0: You know, I heard something interesting related to that. Um, I grew up in Tromsø, which is at Past Arctic Circle, mm. and is a sort of uh, launch pad to Svalbard and other places. And uh, someone was telling me about, um, they were working at a hotel, there, there was some um, uh, Asian tourists who arrived in town, they were going on onwards to they might only it might have only just been out to see the northern lights Mm. Um, but they needed warm jackets the best Mm. so they were ups'd up uh they wore them that one evening and left the next day leaving the jackets behind Mm. and we're talking jackets i think they were about two grand a piece
1: well i think i mean it makes sense i mean the mechanics of how it's done and what it costs is going to vary i think but um We've been talking to a couple of, of hotel chains in Iceland, um, some of the more sort of expensive boutique ones, who about having a range of jackets that they can lend to guests while they're there makes total sense. Because um, otherwise, I think some people just buy these things and use them once, and then you know hang them up and they, they never get used. And you know we're we're making this gear so that people can go and see incredible places. So it's a shame that they're not being used.
0: Yeah, I don't know what makes me most sad that you'd buy an expensive two grand jacket and use it one evening or whether you'd never have the experience mm-hmm. later in life that you might you need the jacket for again. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you mentioned earlier something about a prize. Um, yes, the Shackleton Medal.
1: So um, we thought long and hard about how we would commemorate the centenary of Shackleton's death, which um, – so he died on the 5th of January, 1922. Um, and so obviously the 5th of January, 2022 was exactly a hundred years after that. Um, and on that day, on the evening of the 5th of January, we launched. We were at the Royal Geographical Society in London and we launched the Shackleton Medal for the protection of the polar regions. Um, and <clears throat> so we launched it there and actually on the same, at that event, um, we managed to take a phone call from our Director of Expeditions, Louis Rudd, who just arrived at the South Pole, having trekked 750 nautical miles from, uh, from, from the Ron Ice Shelf to, uh, to South Pole on that evening. So it was lovely. And he read out a um, thing um, about Shackleton uh, there. So it was a, that was quite a moment. Anyway, we launched the Shackleton Medal for the Protection of the Polar Regions. Uh, and we, we pulled together a, a judging panel, some very interesting people, people from the Sami Council, um, people from Harvard Business School, Um, from British Antarctic Survey, it's all on the website, sort of um, a bunch of eminent people from the polar community. And and we asked them, we asked the public to nominate um, people that they felt deserving of the Shackleton Medal. Um, And um, we had 40 or so separate people that were nominated by a few hundred people. the judges narrowed that down to nine uh, nominees. So there were people like um, you might have heard of Lewis Pugh, who's known as for his speedo diplomacy. He's the guy that um, leaps into Antarctic waters and Arctic waters in his swimming trunks um, to do um, basically yeah, frozen swimming. Um, because um, this is all pre-Ukraine, but um, the Russians love um, uh, you know ice cold swimming, and that, that got him into. Um, the Politburo and talking to Russians about what russia's doing in the Arctic and uh, and down in the southern ocean so he 's an amazing guy he 's a marine lawyer you know ecological conservationist uh, called Lewis Bu he was one that was that was um, uh, nominated there were various people that were nominated um, but the the judges ended up um, giving the award to a very charismatic um French glaciologist a, a a lady called Dr Heidi Silvestre. um and as well as being a a, um, a glaciologist who under, who's, who's who actually lives now in Svalbard um studying glacial melt and why it's happening and the effect of pollution on on glaciers because as you imagine when a white thing gets covered in dirt it warms quicker because things absorb heat more, et cetera. Svalbard ice is currently melting seven times faster than than anywhere else. Um, Anyway, she's a a fantastic um, scientist, um, and she is a lobbyist for um, governments and heads of state, or two governments and heads of state. Um, She is a founder member of a thing called Climate Sentinels, which is a load of um, uh, climate scientists around the world. but very interestingly, she's an amazing um, social media communicator. so if you were to look at her you know her instagram and her you know her other social channels, she's bringing the issues of um of climate change and the their impact on the polls to a whole new generation in a very cool way so she's she's um that brilliant combination of a, an extremely hardcore scientist but also someone who's managing to translate science to a whole new generation of people in a really persuasive way so we awarded that actually last um what's today thursday night um on the 5th of april which was tuesday um so that's when that just went out and there's a um there's a lovely um video on our site of when she was awarded it she didn't know she was going to get it um and uh, there was a lovely moment of when she when she when she received it and she talked about how hard it is she said i don't have any good news for you on climate change you know every day it's really hard um, to keep going and um uh, and she's you know i think there's an incredible um camaraderie and sense of you know brotherhood and sistership between between people in the polar community who are all trying to do everything they can to make the world know you know quite what's happening out there um so um anyway so that's been good and we felt that was a good way to to mark the centenary of of the boss's death, uh, on the basis that if he was alive today, you know he wouldn't be discovering the polar regions; he'd probably be protecting them, um, you know, against all the ver- various myriad threats from climate, geopolitics, mining, um, territorial, you know, claims, etc., etc. You know, the Antarctic Treaty will run out. I think it's 2050, 20, um, 54, um and up until then. <clears throat> You know, there's a complete moratorium on exploitation for mining or or anything else. And it's absolutely crucial that um, it's just there for basically for peace and science. Um, So all these people are working to try and preserve that as a place.
0: Right. Now, to end on a lighter note, has it ever struck you how many of the sort of great explorers, the great heroes had great names. I mean, Ernest Shackleton, I mean, it does have a ring to it. If he'd been say Colin Brown, would it have worked as well? Yeah. Well, Colin Brown is quite
1: famous, but yeah, for other things. Um, um, Yeah. Well, Ernest Shackleton is a terrific name, isn't it? I mean, Ernest is a very um, Edwardian name. Much to the chagrin of my, uh, my eldest son, his middle name is Ernest for obvious reasons. Um, And, um, um, but Shackleton is just, it's such a great name. It's just that the, the, con, the hard consonants in it, it just has got um, real presence to it. Big reason why obviously we chose the name for the brand. Um, uh, Roald Amundsen is a great name. I only realized the other day that, um, that, uh, Roald Dahl was named after Roald Amundsen. You probably knew that. Um, but I was only told that the other day because, um, Lucy Dahl, who's his granddaughter is coming with us on one of our, um, Shackleton challenges. Oh. <laughs> um, so, which other one? Were I mean, Douglas Mawson, Roald Amundsen, Robert
0: Falcon Scott? Falcon's a strong, strong middle name, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, but you've also got mountaineers like uh, Mallory and Edmund Hillary. Yes. Yeah. So, so many of them have these sort of evocative names. I mean, yes. Ernest Shackleton sounds almost biblical.
1: Yes. Yeah, no, it's true. I think. I mean, it's interesting though whether the whether the meaning is imbued afterwards or or do you know what i mean whether whether actually i mean there is a (laughs) we we actually sold in early days we sold some of our scratchy jumpers in um harvey nichols in leeds uh in yorkshire and um uh and we had a big shackleton sign up and people coming up saying oh shackleton are you the are you the furniture people because there's a shackleton chair which is a kind of high-backed you know chair that you'd see a lot of them in old people's homes apparently in the north um and um so it's less cool when it's a you know it's your granddad's chair than it is when it's a um, a kick-ass four, minus 40 parker anyway I'll, need to, I'll get my lawyers to send them a letter we've got that covered as well <laughs> i'm sure
0: <laughs> okay martin uh, sort of in closing anything you'd like to mention sort of last words uh,
1: no not really i mean um well, thank you very much for for uh, for having me on. I've really enjoyed banging on and on and on about Ernest Shackleton uh, to you, <clears throat> and um, thanks for your support. Really, I mean, I think um, you know we're trying to we're trying to build a brand that has real purpose and meaning to it, um, and trying to get it right. We're obviously not always going to get it right. There are things that go wrong, and um, uh, and there are lots of challenges. forgive the pun in, in the whole um, in the process, but um, you know. It's a hell of a journey, and we're really enjoying it. We've got a fabulous team of fifteen people that are very much up for the challenge in the business of designing and creating and selling and connecting um, this brand to people around the world. Um, and it's a real privilege to, to have this amazing story, you know, on our, <clears throat> uh, you know, behind our brand. And it's been it's been incredible that I don't think we've had I don't think we've been refused a single meeting, you know, in five years when we say we'd like to meet and we're Shackleton. You know, wherever we go, people will take the meeting because there's this, this, this understanding that people have of what Ernest Shackleton is and represents that they just kind of want to know about it. Um, and it's very exciting that Tom Hardy, the actor, is, is making the definitive biopic of Shackleton. Um, and uh, that'll be out in about 18 months time. So that'll be rather helpful for us, for a whole new generation of people around the world to know all about the Shackleton story. So that'll be quite big news.
0: It certainly is a mighty story. I mean, you mm. couldn't have made it up. No, it would be unbelievable. <laughs> it would be <laughs> unbelievable. Um, yeah. Say,
1: oh, that'll. People will never buy that. Now, surely some of them should die. It's like no, no, none of them die. It's like, oh, come on, somebody should die.
0: <laughs> the first boat has to miss the island. Yeah. Okay, Martin. Thanks a lot. It's been a total pleasure. Thanks and, you very much um, for having me on. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks, Nick. That's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest. Just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.